Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Carmel Majidi, and I lead the Soft Machines Lab at Carnegie Mellon University. So thanks so much, Professor Carmel, for being uh, in part two of the podcast. So we did already part one since one year ago, and uh, hopefully we have interesting discussion today. So I would like to go and cover some question I think we didn't cover uh, in our part one about your childhood. So I'm curious to know about you as a child. Were you interested in science or technology? Do you have any memories about that when you were a child? Um, so the, the thing I was uh, very excited about as a kid uh, were numbers. Um, wow. And, you know, I, you know, my mom tells me that, you know, when I was little, I, I used to just basically um, just, you know, say just random numbers and try to, you know, make, you know, the largest numbers I could. Um, and I, I was also uh, obsessed with uh, just anywhere kind of numbers were listed. Um, uh, you know, like map, like, uh, mm. you know, table of contents of, of a map or, or uh, not table of contents or rather index of, of a map and like, you know, populations of cities, um, or, mm-hmm. or kind of anything where there was kind of a list of numbers I was, I was usually very interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, uh, from a young age, uh, my mom, uh, she's retired now, but she was a professor of mechanical engineering, uh, at university of Delaware. Um, and, uh, you know, did a lot of work in composite materials, mm-hmm. uh, materials, uh, uh, engineering and, and sciences. Uh, and so uh, she would always, uh, uh, you know, tell me about atoms and, you know, how, you know, mm. materials and, and, you know, their atomic structure and, you know, crystalline structure. And, you know, she was just kind of uh, nerding out on, on the stuff that she was studying. And, and oh. I was kind of a, a willing uh, listening board. Um, so, so kind of very early, I, I was also kind of exposed to a lot of these ideas uh, yeah. you know, about the, the kind of the underlying kind of structure, the atomic structure of, of materials. And so, um, uh, yeah, so, so very early on, yeah, I, I did have an interest uh, in um, uh, science and, and mathematics uh, and, and uh, numbers. Um, I wasn't as interested in, mm. in technology. Uh, I wasn't that into uh, video games, um, but not as much as, as, as my friends. Um, uh, although we did uh, have a, um, a, a computer. Um, mm. I mean, this is back in kind of the uh, mid-1980s uh, um, where we did have kind of a few computer games. And uh, um, and so definitely, I, I, you know, I interacted with, with technology, uh, but it wasn't a very big part of my life. Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm, I'm curious to ask you, why are you as a child when just a number? What does it mean to you, these numbers? Do you have any... Um, yeah, you know, I really don't know. I think that's just maybe, um, you know, how I just naturally gravitated. I don't know that my parents made any, you know, special effort uh, to, to get me interested in math. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or numbers and you know same in my school I and mean, I just you know went to um, um, you know the, kind of the you know I had the, the you know the, the you know the, the general kind of educational experience uh, growing yeah. up so so no I, I think part of it was, was just maybe my personality at the time yeah that's uh, that's interesting indeed so in the briefest part one we think that uh, you did your bachelor in civil engineering and your PhD in electric engineering but I'm curious to ask you this time, what is the first actual robot you built? And what is the feeling you um, had at this time? 
so the first robot test bed that I built uh, yeah. was when I was an undergraduate. Um, uh, I, I was doing research with Andy Arena. So this is back when I was at Cornell University. Um, and uh, Andy uh, has a uh, does you know, a lot of really exciting work, uh, you know, pioneering research kind of in the field of biomechanics and, and passive dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, I, I was working on a project related to playground swinging. Um, and um, so, as part of that, uh, I was you know, studying just how kind of you know children naturally uh, pump a playground swing. Uh, but to test some of the hypotheses yeah. uh, that we had uh, about um, you know, how, you know, humans kind of exert, uh, their, their energy, um, and, and, uh, what are the kind of the trade-offs and, and kind of the cost functions associated, uh, with, you know, trying to minimize And our, our theory was to minimize a negative, uh, work, uh, mm-hmm. uh, expenditure. So basically all the kind of the mechanical work and effort, uh, that you put in, uh, when, uh, swinging on a playground swing would as much of that as possible would be directed to the actual motion. Uh, of the um, uh, of the swing to get it to go higher, and uh, mm-hmm. so to test that, uh, I built kind of a a small kind of robot, uh, a, you know, playground uh, swinger. Um, so it was basically just a, a kind of like a, a truss and you know, kind of like a little miniature um, a playground swing set. Uh, and then for the person, uh, I had uh, basically this bar uh, with the motor um, kind of attached at the seat. And I could use that to kind of control the orientation uh, of the um, uh, of the of the little uh, rod uh, that was used to pump the swing, and um, and so that was my first implementation of, of kind of I guess what you would call a robot. Um, and you know I was pretty excited. I mean, Andy Arena, his his kind of attitude was you know to to make uh, you know devices with you know the simplest materials uh, available, um, and so he really advocated just using kind of wood and you know mm-hmm. blocks or you know toy elements and so you know i i, I went to the um uh the hardware store in, in downtown ithaca and just you know picked up just a bunch of you know pieces of, of wood and metal and just kind of cobbled this thing together and uh it was it was quite janky uh, but it, it, it you know did the job and, and i was yeah. i was pretty proud of it uh, at the time cool yeah so i'm curious to ask you since you, you really have been working different um disciplines so what is the most beautiful and simple and profound equation that inspires you. I think almost every guest say Maxwell equation, but I don't know what's your favorite equation. Um, you know, I, I really uh, find the um, you know principles and thermodynamics uh, really captivating, um, just because I feel that it is is incredibly powerful in uh, explaining the you know the physics and, and the mechanics of a very wide range of systems uh, in the. Uh, graduate level um, soft materials uh, and, and mechanics class that I teach, uh, I, I really try to emphasize the fact that a lot of the principles in um, not just nonlinear mechanics and you know mechanics of elastic solids, but also in electrostatics um, and um, you know in, in you know these pneumatic systems and a lot of other types of systems that that people uh, uh, have been uh, doing research on in soft yeah. robotics can all be modeled using the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and so I see those, you know, it, it's not, you know, and, you know, with thermodynamics, I mean, there's so many different, you know, measures of, of kind of, um, you know, free energy. I mean, there's Gibbs and Helmholtz, and then you also have like, you know, entropy and, and you know, there's a lot of terms there. So, um, you know, not quite as, you know, compact as, you know, you know, Maxwell's equations, but incredibly powerful, um, you know, depending on, 
uh, how you define uh, those um, you know, contributions to potential energy or gives free energy, um, you can pretty much rederive the you know, governing equations from, from Maxwell's uh, theory. Uh, you, you can also uh, derive um, you know, all the governing equations uh, used in nonlinear elasticity um, and you know, as well as, as, as other fields. And so they all have their origins in this you know, principle of, of you know the, the first and second laws um, yeah. so, so to me that that really kind of stands out first and uh, foremost yeah I would like to comment about when you say how you define what do you mean about how you define you mean that you can um, take it from different perspective what could be significant parameter you need to consider what do you mean by how you define right so you know with with um, the you know the, the governing laws you know you have say, you know, the balance laws and, and, and mechanics, you know, stress balance, uh, for example, and those considerative relationships um, in, um, you know, electrodynamics, you have uh, uh, Maxwell's equations. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one way of, of representing uh, governing equations. Uh, but, you know, as with, you know, pretty much all of these uh, different uh, disciplines and all these different, um, you know, sets of, of governing equations, you can always represent them uh, in some way as a energy or some type of energy functional and, and study how those uh, functionals kind of uh, vary uh, with respect to uh, whatever you're defining uh, as your kind of, uh, you know, free independent variables within that uh, mm -hmm. system. Um, and, and so, for example, if you look at a, you know, expression, you know, of potential energy, um, you know, or electrical enthalpy, uh, you know, it gives free energy and you look at, say, you know, varying the, you know, the treating voltage as the independent variable and, and varying that. Uh, when you look at um, conditions at which that energy is minimized or that energy is stationary with respect to changes in say that voltage or, or charge, you'll end up recovering uh, Maxwell's equations, right? And the, and the same goes with if you treat say stress or, or strain or displacement field uh, as, as your, uh, you know, value that that's uh, allowed to, to vary um, um, you know if you if you take those variations uh, um, or if you take the variations of the uh, potential energy with respect to, to those parameters then you'll recover your stress balance uh, mm -hmm. and so a lot of these kind of governing equations uh, that we typically kind of study separately and in different disciplines uh, you can um, derive all of those equations uh, by using uh, the the right expression uh, for the uh, total potential energy um, and then selecting the uh, basically the the variable uh, that that you want to vary to to, um, to recover uh, those those balance laws um, uh, and so th there is a little bit of an art uh, to, to that approach uh, because yeah. you have to know in advance what are the relevant terms within your uh, total potential energy you have to know what are your free variables versus your dependent variables uh, yeah. and and you have to uh, be able to to kind of do the calculus uh, in the right way to take the, the first or second variations uh, to, to kind of get those those first and second derivatives mm -hmm. uh, of that uh, potential with respect to those, whatever those uh, variables are. So thanks so much for this detailed clarification. I think that would be interesting for modeling a discussion as well. So um, I would like to jump to soft robotics. So I think that's a question we asked at the previous time, the definition of soft robotics. Do you still have the same definition across this one year? There's something a change in your perspective also for robotics in one year. Um, I, I, for the most part, I mean my um, you know, my perspective on on soft, yeah. soft robotics has been somewhat similar, uh, although it, I, I should say it has, has broadened a bit uh, over this past year. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, you know, before I kind of thought about soft robotics uh, from the hardware uh, and kind of machine and materials uh, standpoint, um, um, and, and I think that still represents a, a you know very important uh, area for continued discovery. Um, mm -hmm. However, uh, just even in this past year, uh, I think I've, I've gotten a greater appreciation of the algorithmic side of, of mm -hmm. soft robotics and then really all the opportunities and modeling and, and um, you know, controls and, and incorporating also kind of data-driven uh, approaches um, and um, you know, statistical learning uh, techniques. And so that, that, that's kind of uh, something that I've been certainly learning more about. And, uh, mm. um, and that's kind of uh, been, you know, become a larger kind of uh, part of the, of, the, of the overall picture that I have for, for soft robotics. Um, and then there's this other component uh, which uh, relates more to um, uh, the human kind of machine or human robot uh, interaction. Um, uh, recently, um, I uh, helped to, to lead a, a kind of a, a group uh, or initiative uh, at um, Carnegie Mellon on, on this notion of symbiotic systems. Mm -hmm. uh, and in large part, it is kind of a, um, a way to apply soft robotics to the area of, of human uh, machine interaction. Um, and, and so the, the focus is to basically engineer, not necessarily soft robotic systems, but uh, intelligent machines and systems that can engage in some type of symbiotic relationship with human users. Um, and this could be through direct physical interaction. So, uh, you know, wearable uh, soft robotic system, um, you know, medical device, uh, or it could be uh, done remotely, I mean, through teleoperation. Um, mm -hmm. And so looking at both on the human side, haptic interfaces, um, VR, AR interfaces, and then on the on the kind of the robot, you know, or the teleoperated side, the, the so-called avatar side, uh, building um, uh, machines and 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 uh, uh, actuators and, and robot skin and elements uh, that could allow that robot to kind of operate uh, in a way similar to, to how a human would operate in those remote environments. Mm -hmm. I think what you mentioned about uh, advanced algorithmic side, I think that's super interesting because I think the audience also has a questions about uh, uh, most of the paper have been released this year about uh, the first real-time uh, physics engine simulator for soft robotics. So I think that's something we will cover in detail and I think it's very interesting. So before going, I think maybe I'm still asking you what, what kind of question, the most important question that should be considered while be working in your soft robotics project. If you can tell us um, a broad perspective about what could be the most important questions that should be considered. Right, so, so I would say there's, from a very high level, I mean, I think there's two ways of tackling this. Um, so from an academic standpoint, if you're a PhD um, or you know undergrad master's student who's just kind of getting a start in, in soft robotics research, um, you know, regardless of whether you want to go down the path of, of academia, uh, uh, you know, or if you, you know, want to have a career in, in industry or entrepreneurship, still, I think when you're at the, you know, in the university and you're, and you're um, trying to develop this, this kind of, you know, basic kind of knowledge and, um, and, and get this more fundamental training, I, I think it's really important to tie whatever you're do, uh, doing in soft robotics to the underlying kind of this, scientific principles uh, in engineering uh, and, and the sciences. And so uh, it's, it's very important if you're doing something kind of related more to the material side um, that you don't just pursue that research kind of in an ad hoc manner, but you really try to understand how it relates to the underlying mechanics or, or mm -hmm. the underlying chemistry 
uh, of the materials uh, that you're working with, and also look at opportunities uh, for applying insights and knowledge uh, from your work in soft robotics, maybe to these to these other adjacent fields. Um, and and you know that you know I'm using kind of materials as, as you know one example. I mean you know on the other end of the spectrum, if, if a lot of the work you're doing is more with you know human machine interaction, mm -hmm. um, I mean there's a lot of you know deeper kind of underlying questions you know related to kind of the psychology you know or the um, uh, you know the psychophysical nature of these uh, robotic systems and then you know their interaction with humans. Um, and so uh, I mean these uh, different scientific domains can span a wide uh, range of disciplines. Uh, but I think it's important when you're at least kind of within academia and, and you're training within this field and, and developing your expertise that you do make that connection to some scientific discipline. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so that's in contrast to basically doing more hack work uh, or ad hoc work where you're just basically, you know, you know, randomly or maybe just using some gut intuition uh, to to design something and, and getting it to do what you want to do. Um, so I would say that that's kind of one important thing. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. ask yourself basically what's the underlying science um, and, yeah. and how is the work I'm doing either advancing the science or, you know, how am I using the science to uniquely advance, uh, you know, the, these tasks within, within robotics. Um, so that's one. When it comes to um, uh, outside of academia, yeah. uh, when it comes to industry, when it comes to entrepreneurship, uh, the, uh, there I think the, the question is, um, uh, is, is kind of inescapable, uh, but it's basically who's gonna be paying for this product, right? Mm -hmm. and, and really not getting so enamored uh, with, the, um, you know, with the novelty of what it is that you're doing or the, you know, how complex it is from an intellectual level and yeah. you know, how it's exciting to you. And then really just ask yourself, how is this helping people? And you mm -hmm. know, how is this helping the customer? Uh, or, or the patient, um, and, um, and and really letting that uh, drive the process of, of you know design and, and, and refinement of your product. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very serious point, and I, I know that there's a lot of uh, maybe spin-off from your lab. For, uh, I think I think that's question very important when you start in a project. Do you think it could be uh, a product-driven or technology-driven? Which is which is one you think? is important uh, while you're working, maybe in academia from perspective, do you think we have to shift from the technology driven to be a product driven? Um, I think it is, it really depends on what you're trying to train for. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there's a lot of value uh, in really just focusing on the science uh, and, and you know, exploring you know, new ideas and, and really pushing the intellectual boundaries and then not really feeling that, that you, uh, not feeling that you you have to be burdened um, by you know the current kind of you know needs in industry or kind of immediate uh, consumer needs. Um, so so I, I do think there's kind of value in, in kind of pursuing the science um, and pursuing science for science's sake. Mm -hmm. um, however, uh, I, I think overall, as the you know for the field of soft robotics to um, succeed and, and be sustainable in the long term. Uh, there also has to be effort. Not everybody has to participate in this, but yeah. there has to be kind of enough uh, effort also on commercialization, yeah. um, you know, entrepreneurship, and, and you know, and, and really making sure that these uh, uh, systems, these technologies, do make it into uh, useful products for for society. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I think individuals have to decide. I mean, if they want to kind of you know blend the two, or if they want to kind of pursue one versus the other. Um, but regardless, um, I, I, there is, um, you know, important types of questions and, and issues that you do have to uh, tackle. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, if you're pursuing the academic route, 
you know, you really have to challenge yourself and, and you know, you know, push the intellectual envelope uh, and also kind of connect whatever it is that you're doing to underlying principles and science. I mean, for, for that work to be fundamental, and in my mind, a fundamental research is research that will translate, um, where insights will translate among many uh, different fields or disciplines. It won't just be related to that one mm -hmm. uh, task, uh, you know, or, or that one technology that you're working on. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I'm curious to ask you, what do you think, what is an area or direction of research uh, you think is very promising, but the community seems to disagree or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment? Um, I, I think the... I think the community is headed uh, towards there, but something that I would, you know, really like to see um, more of uh, are to have implementations in, in soft robotics or soft electronics, um, where the the systems are uh, completely standalone systems that aren't dependent on external hardware. Um, and and uh, you know, I, in, in you know some of the papers, uh, you know, my lab has written, you know recently, I mean, we talked about, you know, cutting the cord and then building kind of soft robots that are fully untethered uh, or, you know, soft electronics that are fully wireless. Um, that introduces new challenges uh, in design. Um, and there's, um, you know, there's certain positive uh, things about kind of trying to create these, these kind of fully, um, you know, operational standalone systems. Um, so that will make them more useful uh, as, as end products um, or, or as technologies that people can actually uh, go and deploy and use in the field. Um, but on the flip side, the, the downside, uh, you know, especially within academia, of yeah. being too aggressive with, with making things that are, um, you know, fully self-contained and, you know, fully untethered and wireless, uh, is that it does kind of introduce uh, barriers and it does make it difficult to, to really push the envelope with exploring new materials. Because there are, you know, a lot of materials for soft actuators and, you know, soft electronics and sensing um, that are promising, but they're not there yet in terms of performance. And so they might not be capable of, of bearing the weight of, of all the supporting, you know, microcontrollers and, mm. and hardware and batteries, you know, that, that would be needed to power these, these actuators. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that, that's kind of, you know, a definitely a concern too. So I, I'm not saying that, you know, as a, as a field, we all have to shift to, you know, devices and systems that mm -hmm. uh, can be fully operated using, you know, onboard batteries and, and microcontrollers. I, I think there's still a space to, um, you know, really just kind of focus uh, or make progress on the individual subcomponents uh, within those uh, those systems and test beds for those will uh, be be wired and, and have tethers and connections to external hardware. Mm -hmm. But I, I would like to see kind of, a, you know, more of a push uh, towards, towards systems um, uh, that, you know, that, that are self-contained. Um, mm -hmm. I think the software box community has gotten to that point now where there's a, at least a few kind of good candidate um, uh materials and designs out there for actuators and sensors and electronics where mm -hmm. that untethered functionality is, is certainly possible. Yeah, I think that's also a very important point. I would like to push again this point because you mentioned something about uh, um, the pressure that you have. I, mean, I think that's a pressure you have to uh, come with certain projects as soon as possible and maybe result. And I, I'm curious to ask you, for example, any conductive polymer, sometimes we have this, if we have higher sickness, sickness depending on the mechanical performance, but there's always a trade-off between the mechanical performance you are looking to and the response time. So there's always this trade-off. And I'm curious to ask you, where does this problem come from? It is about understanding how we understand this material, or maybe we don't have enough modeling to descriptive model. Where does this problem come from, if it's a problem? 
Um, the, the problem in terms of the response time, uh, or for that matter, the work density or, or you know, or the force output of, of a soft actuator, um, I mean, it, it very much depends on the underlying mechanics and uh, the mechanism and, and the physics. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, I mean, one way to kind of think about this is, you know, what's the, um, you know, the, the, what are the underlying timescales uh, involved? Um, so when you talk about a dielectric elastomer actuator, those actuators can be quite fast uh, because uh, their operation is, is you know, largely dictated uh, by um, the response of electrostatic field uh, and, and the motion of, of electrostatic charge. And, mm. and those occur at very fast uh, time scales, right? And probably with dielectric elastomers, uh, oftentimes the limiting uh, factor there is just how quickly can the elastomer deform, and then you know I would expect that kind of viscoelasticity mm -hmm. um, and, and you know creep and relaxation. Those would also uh, have important roles in the in the speed and the time response to the material. In in addition to kind of you know potential inertial effects uh, that you have, um, and so you know that you know that that kind of represents kind of one end of the spectrum where you can create these you know very fast uh, soft actuators. Kind of on the slow side uh, are um, Mm -hmm. uh, actuators that, you know, use uh, dual heating and, 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 you know, and then just ambient cooling. Um, so actuators that use shape memory alloy or liquid crystal elastomer or, you know, a lot of these kind of thermally responsive shape memory polymers or gels. Um, yeah. And so, you know, depending on how much electrical power uh, or thermal power you, you put in the system, you might get very rapid heating mm. uh, on the order of, you know, hundreds of milliseconds or even tens of milliseconds. But for, you know, the for you to wait for the uh, material to kind of cool back down to room temperature, um, you know, before you have the next act uh, activation cycle, that actually, you know, is going to be slowed down by the time, by all the time required for the heat to mm -hmm. leave that volume of material. Um, and so very different physics as opposed to uh, what's involved in a dielectric elastomer actuator, um, and then hence, uh, you know, very different length scales and, or time scales rather, uh, and, and very different response uh, speeds. Uh, and then in between you have uh, actuator, you know, like pneumatic or hydraulically yeah. driven, you know, where those speeds are going to be dictated by just the you know, amount of time needed to push fluid around from one place to another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's interesting, I think, because you have been working with different spectrum of material. So I, I don't know what you thought about, for example, there's a challenge to deal with viscoelastic materials sometimes. And do you think that what kind um, of optimum material do you think we have to design? Is this viscoelastic or just or just elastic material? What your thought about the optimum material? Of course, it's been application, but if you think about it, what could be the optimum properties you want to design in your material? Right. I mean, you know, so much of soft robotics um, gets its inspiration, or I should say, so much of research in soft robotics gets its inspiration from nature, so from the human body or, or soft biological organism, say like a marine organism. Um, and, and, you know, when we look at, um, you know, soft body biological organisms, I mean, there's a you know, wide range of different types mm -hmm. of materials with different properties. You know, some materials are, you know, softer, stiffer, uh, you know, more elastic, more viscoelastic. Um, and, and so it, it's tough to say if there is like, you know, you know, an optimal, um, you know, material out there. Uh, I mean, you know, one, you know, you know, concept that, that's, uh, you know, been studied for, for a while now uh, are kind of materials that exhibit these kind of programmable or, or dynamically tunable properties, you know, mm -hmm. so materials uh, that can rapidly change their stiffness um, and, um, you know, or, or, you know, rapidly change, you know, some other type of, you know, their shape or, 
um, uh, you know, other, other types of physical properties. Um, and, and so that's kind of one workaround, you know, to say that there is no optimal material, you know, but, you know, there's an opportunity to, to have materials that can dynamically tune uh, their, their properties, uh, depending on changes in environmental conditions or changes in needs or, you know, changes between when you're in the passive state versus in kind of an active load bearing state. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think that actually is, is, you know, you know, is, a, is an interesting kind of area to explore um, is, mm. is to create these dynamically uh, tunable type type materials that, that respond to some kind of uh, stimuli. Mm. Uh, and, and I think there's all, I mean, there's also been, you know, really nice work in, um, tuning the physical properties of materials in more of a static way. So, um, uh, you know, there, there's been some really beautiful work. Um, Chris Matajewski actually in, in, um, at, at Carnegie Mellon, he's in the uh, chemistry department and then he's worked with, with colleagues at University of North Carolina and, and elsewhere uh, to look at uh, ways to um, synthesize polymers um, where you can uh, match the kind of the, the wide range of, of different types of uh, considerative properties that you see in biological materials uh, and so yeah. the, you know engineering um you know polymers and, and elastomers that can you know either have a kind of strain stiffening effect or a strain softening effect um, um in, in 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 manners that that kind of resemble what uh you know colleges uh, or collagen uh, uh based materials in, in nature uh, exhibit um and um and, and also within, uh, uh, you know, 3D printing and additive manufacturing, there's a lot of, you know, there've been for decades now, exciting progress uh, in, um, you know, ways to, um, you know, vary kind of the stiffness, make these kind of almost like digital type type materials um, that, that can be uh, printed, say, using a polyjet um, yeah. 3D printing process. Um, uh, and so, you know, that that's kind of more of a static uh, kind of materials tuning uh, type approach, but but that's fine too. I mean, I, I think there's, there's uh, you know, generally this is a very rich area um, and yeah. there's a lot to explore. But yeah, I, I don't know that there's necessarily any kind of one kind of optimal material. I mean, I, I guess the optimal material is one that, you know, where you can, you know, kind of fine tune the, um, uh, you know, either through changes in cross-linking or, you know, changes mm -hmm. in, in the macromolecular structure, you know, to, to fine tune it so that you can kind of program or on demand have the material properties that you want mm -hmm. um, for, for, you know, whatever uh, device you're uh, building. Yeah. I'm curious to ask you again about the modeling. Do you think which scale of modeling we have to consider? We have the micro and meso and macro scale. Because I, th I have the perception, I don't know if you agree with that, that modeling sometimes is underappreciated. And that's why maybe we struggle with the limitation. I don't know what which level do you think we have to go for in that case. Um, I, I think there is, with you know all the the interest in um, data driven techniques and you know using you know learning um, methods in, in a variety of different contexts. Um, you know, I think people have kind of taken deterministic modeling uh, yeah. somewhat maybe for granted. Well, not everybody. I mean, certainly still people, you know, doing you know, really important work in that field. Uh, but for a lot of others, I think the impression has been that a lot of the um, deterministic modeling, uh, so using kind of first principles or using kind of governing equations to uh, make predictions for uh, how materials deform or, or how objects move, um, I think the assumption is that that's all been worked out in FDA or in physics mm -hmm. engines or these uh, um, uh, kind of atomistic uh, modeling tools, uh, you know, tools like LAMPS, uh, for example. Um, so I, the, um, 
yeah, and the pro and, and the reality is, yes, I mean, a lot of these uh, uh, tools uh, are, you know, very effective at, at modeling at, at all these different life scales. And there's just been, you know, tons of, you know, demonstrations of, you know, how those predictions are in agreement uh, with, mm -hmm. with experimental measurements. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge, though, uh, is that, uh, you know, with the exception of, you know, some physics engines out there that are used in the graphics community, uh, a lot of these um, uh, tools, these computational tools are, are quite slow still. Um, you know, this sometimes takes, um, you know, hours of simul you know, simulation runtime on, you know, many, many threads, you know, and, uh, you know, or, you know, on a, or in a computer cluster, uh, just to simulate in some cases, you know, a few seconds of, of actual, you know, physical um, uh, behavior. So um, that that's still fine. I mean, just, you know, for, for, you know, a ton of applications out there, which is, you know, why these, these tools have, have you know, been embraced in, in the way they have been. Um, but I think in, in soft robotics, you know, when we want to use uh, computational techniques and then loop that in, uh, into controls or path planning, or, or if we want to, you know, run some genetic algorithm or we're, you know, running thousands or, you know, hundreds of thousands of simulations to, to come up with a new design, mm -hmm. um, th there is a, value and a real need uh, to have uh, modeling uh, tools uh, that can converge, they can run very rapidly. Um, and, you know, what my lab has been doing in, in collaboration with, with a couple of other uh, groups, um, including uh, Kala, the Joet at, at UCLA, yeah. uh, is to build basically a soft uh, robot physics engine uh, that can run um, in real time or, or faster in real time. So the actual runtime of the simulation will be um, as fast, uh, if not faster, than the wall clock time of the of the physics that that simulator is, is that that model is trying to simulate. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, I, I think there's still uh, kind of a lot of a lot of room there. And, and again, I, I would kind of emphasize, uh, you know, still the need for for deterministic modeling uh, because I mean, you know, as as anybody who's who's kind of worked with with um, you know FEA knows. Um, these these computational tools and these governing equations uh, and, and these theories are pretty accurate uh, in, in, cap in capturing the, the actual physics of, of the system that's trying to model. Um, and so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's not necessarily the need to run some learning algorithm and, you know, and, and you know, treat your system as a black box. It's not really a mystery that, you know, um, that the system is going to be governed by, you know, principles of mechanics and electrodynamics and, you know, hydraulics. And so, so why not leverage that knowledge uh, for, for accurate model, modeling? Yeah, that's a super important point. And I think that's, uh, that's a question here, maybe, what do you think maybe the most significant parameter while you work in designing uh, maybe new material or new functionality? How you figure out what could be the most significant parameter? Is it the morphology or something maybe electrical parameter or mechanical? How you figure out oh, what's the most significant right. parameter? Um, so, I, I, I'm still learning a lot, uh, and and you know a lot of um, uh, my you know a lot of what I've been learning uh, has been through my collaboration with uh, Chris Medajeski's uh, lab. So I mentioned before he's a uh, prof uh, world famous professor of, mm -hmm. of chemistry, and I think the the, the most highly cited. Um, uh, scientists in, in, in the field of uh, polymer chemistry, um, and and so he, you know, and just incredible, really extraordinary uh, person mm -hmm. to, to kind of talk to and, and learn from. Um, yeah. But through him, I mean, and, and you know, he, he's introduced um, uh, a variety of different techniques for um, materials of polymerization, um, and, and has developed uh, techniques like ATRP. 
uh, atomic transfer or radical polymerization to have very tight control uh, on um, the engineering of, of polymers and, and mm. you know, and introduce ways of uh, combining um, polymers with all sorts of uh, other materials, um, you know, nanoparticles and, you know, the liquid metal droplets you know, that my lab has also been doing research in um, and, you know, forming all, you know, sorts of different you know, di-block copolymers, tri-block copolymers. Um, and so with his techniques, uh, he, he's, you know, really introduced kind of really extraordinary methods for um, um, uh, tailoring uh, the, the properties and, and kind of morphology of, of these uh, of, of polymers. Um, and so that, that definitely, I think, is, is, you know, a very powerful tool uh, to, to kind of tailor and, and you know, design uh, materials on demand. Um, and, and so that kind of represents one approach. And, and the other approach, of course, is to make these more heterogeneous structures where you're kind of, mm. you know, blending, say, polymers with, with other types of, you know, micro and, and, and nanoparticles. Um, and, um, uh, and, and, you know, that approach doesn't require, you know, quite the same degree of, of kind of control uh, on polymerization in some cases. Um, I mean, there, the, the function, you know, the uh, control on, on properties is, is more dictated by volume fractions and, and ways of, of kind of uh, synthesis techniques for kind of blending these different um, uh, disparate uh, materials. Um, and, and so there's kind of a variety of different uh, approaches there. And, and I wouldn't say that, you know, that there's like any kind of universal kind of prompts or, or kind of, uh, you know, rules of thumb uh, for, for engineering. It, it's very much case by case, uh, depending on uh, what, what approach you're taking. That's, uh, I think, very important as well. I think this question is needed here. Do you think, um, as we are researching soft robotics field, fully understand the physics behind smart material? Through your expertise and dealing with many people in the field, do you think we fully understand the physics of the material? I think we understand it enough. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think the barrier is, is more cases where um, there's just a lot of stochasticity uh, in the system. Um, and so, you know, as an example, um, you know, we recently published a, a couple of um, uh, papers. This is work done by Tess Hollowbreakers, who recently graduated from my lab on uh, magnetic microparticles embedded in a soft rubber. Um, and so as you deform the rubber, these particles, they move and uh, that changes the internal magnetic field mm -hmm. uh, within, the, within the material. And so you can use that to uh, kind of infer or detect uh, surface contacts and, and deformation. So this is kind of one of you know, many examples out there of, of systems in soft robotics uh, where the coupling in this case between mechanical deformation and magnetic field is largely driven by a stochastic uh, type of process. And it's stochastic because these particles have you know, randomly distributed, um, they're magnetized and the magnetic pole is, is kind of randomly oriented. Um, um, and then, you know, some of the poles are kind of pointing, you know, in the plane of the material, some are kind of pointing out um, through the thickness. Um, and so there's really no way uh, that we can establish a deterministic model to, to predict how, you know, pressing in any one area is going to cause a, you know, change in magnetic field that we can measure in a magnetometer, yeah. say elsewhere uh, in the material. Um, uh, and so for that, we have to use uh, data-driven techniques. Uh, yeah. And so I would say that kind of, you know, that dealing with that stochasticity, I think it, you know, represents kind of the biggest challenge with, with modeling these materials in some cases. Um, and, um, but, you know, when it comes to the underlying physics, I think for the most part, um, you know, I, I think there's a pretty good understanding of, of how a lot of these materials and, and soft robotics work. Uh, and, and as a result, I, I think there's been a lot of really nice kind of demonstrations and, and, and you know, of, of models that can accurately predict uh, mm -hmm. the behaviors of 
materials. Mm -hmm. And then what I'm talking about with these magnetic skins and the stochasticity, that just re represents kind of one, one like kind of class uh, yeah. of materials where we, you know, aren't as successful with, with using these uh, deterministic models. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, but I'm curious to ask you as well, why we have this issue of reproducibility? And then if we have like so far what we have, I think it's an issue in academia in general, but why we have this issue sometimes is that we can't reproduce most of uh, published uh, results sometimes. Right. Um, so, so some of that, again, is by design. I mean, you know, when you talk about, you know, a, a random network of particles within a, you know, within a rubber matrix, um, I mean, you know, you're never going to get the, you know, the same um, you know, network morphology or the same mm -hmm. distribution of, of particles uh, every time. Um, uh, and that's fine. I mean, I think on average, though, you are going to see um, similar behavior from from sample to sample. Um, um, but at the end of the day, I mean, there, there still might have to you might have to kind of do that calibration step and, and use um, you know, uh, you know data driven type techniques uh, to to establish whatever those mappings is that, that you want for for either sensing or for actuation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's just how just that's just how it is. And, and I think that that's fine. I mean, yeah. you know, for that matter, you know, natural organisms is a wide range of stochasticity and then variation, you know, uh, you know, from from, you know, one one organism to, to another, even within the same uh, species. Um, so I think that that's kind of fine. And then, you know, to some extent, there's, there's really no escape from that. Um, um, so th that's that's kind of, I, I would say, kind of one. Um, you know, there is this other element uh, where, you know, the fact is these materials are, are highly deformable. Mm -hmm. So even if nominally you think that two materials uh, are kind of deformed in the same way, uh, or even the same material, like, you know, subsequent deformations or, you know, or, you know, over the course of time, I mean, it's, you know, you're not going to get it to um, deform exactly the, the same way just because of the kind of the infinite degrees of freedom that you have with, a, with an elastic continuous solid that, that you know, um, where, um, you know, you, you have only very light uh, kind of kinematic coupling between, you know, between all the different points. Um, uh, and so in that case, I mean, you know, you're just in practice, you're not always going to get uh, that degree of repeatability that's just the nature of working with materials that are soft and especially if you on top of that uh, incorporate inelasticity internal friction you know viscoelastic deformation that you know that's also going to lead uh, to um, you know effects like non-stationarity over time um, you know or, or just kind of variations um, you know from from one motion to the next mm -hmm. yeah great so I want to ask you about what you think may be the most misconceptions you have witnessed about soft robotics. Maybe when it was people outside the field or with your peers about your work on be about soft robotics in general. What could be the most uh, misconception you have witnessed uh, by others here? Um, I would say probably a misconception that I think you know has existed in the past. Although I, you know more and more, I think uh, you know as a community, we're moving away from it. Yeah. Is this notion that anything that moves is a robot? Um, you know, so um, you know, I, I think you know anything that you know, like a you know something that inflates or, or deforms. Um, it, you know, you can certainly you know think about it as an actuator. Um, you know, and, and you know you can you know think about something that just you know moves repeatedly and then you know inches forward, you can think about that as like a crawler, um, but you know, it, it's not necessarily a robot. Uh, and so I, I think there is somewhat of a misconception 
about what what it is for for something to be be an actual robot. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, there's there's various uh, kind of definitions out there. I mean, um, and uh, you know, but but there has to be some ability to control uh, that that system. I mean, you know, there you know, in t- there has to be some way of incorporating intelligence, either kind of intrinsically within the system or with this on board hardware, or at least kind of externally, uh, there should be a way to kind of, um, uh, you know, impose, you know, some type of um, uh, intelligent or kind of deterministic um, influence on on the, the behavior or motion uh, of, of the machine. Um, you know, and then you can kind of go a few steps further and say that all the processing has to happen on board, you know, all this, you know, that, that in addition to moving, the robot has to be able to sense uh, and protect this environment. Um, and mm-hmm. so there, there's kind of different definitions out there, but just to have something that can kind of just crawl or, you know, inflate or, or kind of move in some way, just that on in its own is not enough to, to kind of um, yeah. constitute a robot. Yeah. And I'm curious to ask you about uh, your take about the traditional control techniques. We had the first uh, soft robotics debate about uh, morphological computation via tra- traditional control techniques. And the question mm-hmm. is, do you think that... Uh, how we can get the task done without destroying the natural dynamic of the material of the, by using traditional control? Because some groups use modular te- techniques for the distributed control. And yeah, another group maybe sometimes to force the soft robot to make certain behavior. So I don't know what your take. Do you think we have to think about maybe different approaches or maybe advance what we have, or we have to incorporate morphological parameters uh, to enhance the control design, how do you see as a traditional control in the realm of soft robotics? I, mean, I, I when I think about new types of questions to explore um, with control, um, at least within soft robotics, I, I think it's important to, to focus on things that you couldn't really explore with kind of more conventional robotic systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, even when it comes down to modularity, I mean, there's been a lot of incredible work on. Uh, modular kind of rigid robots. Um, mm. and so I think the first thing to kind of ask yourself within the soft robots community is, um, you know, is this something where I actually need a soft robot to test out this this hypothesis? Mm-hmm. Or is it fine for me to just go out and use a wheeled vehicle or a swarm of wheeled vehicles or, you know, or, or other kind of uh, more conventional uh, robots? Um, and, you know, and I'd say that in, in a lot of cases, I mean, there are kind of new things you can explore uh, in soft robotics. I mean, something that I'm uh, interested in is, um, um, you know, how, you know, some of these highly deformable materials can kind of adapt um, yeah. and, and kind of, um, you know, transform themselves uh, over time and, and how the controller would have to automatically update to, to accommodate uh, those, those transformations. Um, and so um, uh, that, you know, that, that, that's something that, you know, might be a little bit more challenging to do with uh, systems that are a little bit more static or fixed in, mm-hmm. in terms of their shape or their functionality. Um, yeah. And so I think that that kind of represents a rich area, and, and that does tie in also the kind of modularity too, right? I mean, um, you know, systems that can kind of reconfigure themselves um, and then you know adopt new kind of functions, um, and and then how would the you know the controller basically detect that and then kind of uh, update itself accordingly? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think those are I mean those interesting questions. I mean it gets a little bit out of the scope of the research that I do, but but I do have colleagues who you know started to look at these questions, and, and so mm-hmm. it's something that you know I, I would love to support. Uh, in terms of uh, helping to build software robot test beds uh, that could be used to carry out these algorithms and, and kind of control schemes. Um, 
so yeah, yeah, that, that's something I think that that, that will yeah. be interesting to explore yeah. in the near future. Yeah, and I think also this question uh, we had it was Professor George Weisside. He said that nonlinear just can bring opportunities like buckling. So I'm curious to ask you from your experience, what kind of nonlinear just can, could be beneficial or maybe detrimental for software robot? How you assess that this nonlinear just could be beneficial? Right. I would say from a practical standpoint, I mean, we we do find there's a lot of uh, use um, in um, snap through instabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, basically, you know, having this engineering structure that are bistable, where you just basically trigger it to snap between these different states, um, we find that it can really improve efficiency, uh, especially for systems where we use shape memory alloy to, to actuate. Um, Shape memory alloy. I mean, you have to expend a lot of energy to to um, to, to basically to uh, maintain those actuators in a certain state. Uh, and so, if there was a way to basically snap the the you know the you know our robot uh, into into a certain shape um, and, and and have it stay stable in that new shape, uh, then we can basically deactivate our, our shape memory alloy act actuators. So we don't have to continuously pump energy into this to keep it in that mm -hmm. new shape. So. So there are kind of cases there where, where you know that you know that could have value. And specifically, um, in, in my collaborations, we're looking at different types of power origami, uh, where we wanted to basically sap into a new shape and then to stay locked um, uh, in, in that in that state for a while until we snap it back to some other configuration. Mm -hmm. um, so so that's one. I mean, the, and the other thing, increasingly, I have a PhD student right now who's who's looking at this, and I think this is also important. I mean, we talk about nonlinearities, but there's also kind of non-stationarity uh, mm -hmm. in these systems. So, uh, over time, um, you know, just do fatigue or creep or, you know, um, yeah. you know, inelastic uh, uh, deformations, um, you can kind of, you know, have these, these kind of, you know, long-term, you know, permanent uh, changes uh, in the, in the shape or the pro physical properties of your system. And, and usually we think of that as a bad thing uh, in, um, uh, in, in machines and, and robotics. But you know, you know, it's a feature of of natural organisms, and it's something that maybe we we can embrace uh, in in soft robotic systems. And so that's something also increasingly we're looking at is this question of non-stationarity. Yeah, that's a good point as well. So, do you think there's any direction you thought would work out very well? Maybe while you would do all the analytical modeling or just thinking about it, and empirical results proved something maybe very interesting, or you didn't expect that this result. Oh, um, so we, I mean, lately we've even applying computational models uh, to kind of understand the electrical properties of composites of the liquid metal droplets inside rubber. Yeah. Um, and, and there, um, you know, we, we found that these computational models uh, do, you know, are capable of predicting kind of behavior uh, that we see experimentally. Now, the original experimental results were very surprising. Um, uh, specifically, uh, these composites of liquid metal and rubber, um, we can engineer them so they're, that they're electrically conductive. And you know, as with you know any other you know conductor, you would expect that as you stretch the material uh, and as the cross-sectional area reduces, that the electrical resistance yeah. of, of that material should increase. Uh, but what we found experimentally is uh, that there was no electromechanical coupling. So even when we stretch these materials to, you know five, 10 times their natural length, uh, we saw that the electrical resistance stayed uh, uh, fairly steady. Um, and so that was something that surprised us experimentally. Um, and it's, but, you know, when we went in and, and modeled it kind of computationally down to the, uh, the, the liquid metal droplets, uh, yeah. we actually found that indeed uh, that, that you know, we, got, we, we could see kind of agreement with, with experiment. Um, 
So, so that's just kind of one example. Um, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, there's, there's other examples from other groups where they've kind of looked at snap through instabilities and, and, you know, observed it computationally and then seen it experimentally. And, and it is oftentimes surprising. Yeah. So now we're going to go to the audience question. We have a question from Vanit uh, Aziz. He says that, hello, Professor Majidi. Thank you for attending the podcast. And I'm very interested in the future of intelligence soft robotics in human rehabilitation, especially with the sensitive skin technology um, your lab have, has developed. For example, uh, thermosensitive semi-rigid knee braces, 100% soft exosuite and uh, with soft actuator and nerveless, uh, nerve aesthetics with fully sensitive skin. He asks us, what else do you see in the future of this intersection and what are the challenges that still needed to be overcome? Which researchers or lab do you feel are making the biggest strides in soft robotics for rehabilitation in, in robotics? And thank you for, again. A very good question and then kind of a, a, you know, a lot there. Um, so I'll do my best to, I don't know that if, if I can answer all the questions, but you know, I'll, I'll you know, certainly do my best. So. Um, the, I mean, the field of, of you know rehabilitation robotics is is uh, you know quite quite rich, uh, and it's not something that I'm directly involved uh, in, so I can't really comment on you know the labs that you know are, are really kind of you know necessarily leaders uh, in the field, um, only just because that there's so many different facets of, of rehabilitation that um, you know if I if I just you know give an answer just from you know one you know from a soft robotics perspective. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that would really kind of do justice uh, to, to the field. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, and I just want to kind of recognize that, you know, there's plenty of, you know, larger research groups that kind of work in this domain, but there's also, you know, small research labs uh, that also kind of uh, are, that, that are very active and, you know, and, and um, you know, it's not, it's a bit of apples and oranges to, you know, compare, um, you know, basically the impact of, of all these different groups. Um, but, um, you know, I, the, you know, the overall kind of idea of, of applying soft robotics uh, to human rehabilitation and even going beyond that, just to, to you know, more broadly human motor assistance, um, I think is, is a really excellent um, mm. uh, use of these uh, technologies. Um, and, um, and it also kind of ties into the, this theme uh, that, um, that or this initiative that we're starting at Carnegie Mellon on symbiotic systems or kind of machines uh, and wearables that uh, can can uh, you know function in a manner in harmony with with the human body, um, and so th there's a lot of different approaches. I, I would not say that you know these technologies necessarily have to be all soft. You know, I think there's a lot of really clever techniques of using kind of you know more rigid materials or inexpensive uh, materials or fabrics uh, that can be comfortably worn uh, on the body, um, and. Um, and so, you know, so, so I, you know, I, 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 I can't like really, you know, say that the future of, of, you know, rehabilitation robotics or the, you know, wearable exos or whatever is going to be, you know, all soft. I think it's in all likelihood probably going to be a blend of, of, you know, soft and rigid materials, soft to, to ensure kind of conformity, uh, conformity to the skin and comfort. But you will have to have, you know, rigid materials or at least rigidity tuning materials that can support load. Uh, loads um so load bearing materials and also materials that can exert force uh and um uh and, and perform mechanical work that's a good point yeah and we have a question from uh Suhad Fezan. uh he said that we often see that soft robotics demonstration which rigid uh rigid pcb modules and bulky uh, accessories 
What are your thoughts about integrating flexible uh, complementary metal uh, uh, oxide uh, silicon electrons uh, for thin? And organics doesn't have bar performance of that uh, out of the picture in the near future. So that's his question. Um, yeah, and, and I would say as with a lot of um, uh, different uh, projects and research stress within soft robotics, I mean, there are you know very practical solutions uh, that are good enough. Um, uh, and then there is also uh, kind of more um, kind of visionary types of approaches that you know might not be practical for years or decades to come. And I think you know soft electronics is, is you know a great great example of that, right? I mean you know there's, there's plenty that can be done with miniaturized kind of uh, rigid uh, electronics, uh, you know more traditional uh, PCBs. I mean you know there's also you know uh, you know really kind of uh, uh, great advancements and kind of highly flexible and thin film uh, electronics. Um, and, and so I, I think that practically speaking, I mean, if you're talking about, you know, getting a commercial product out mm -hmm. there, or, uh, you know, you know, putting something, you know, uh, into, into, into a wearable device that could be used for say like patient monitoring or, or you know, wearable uh, uh, wireless health monitoring. Um, then sure. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, flex, uh, flex PCBs um, and, and kind of a lot of these, kind of more conventional type type materials are probably good enough. I mean, um, but I mean, I, I think in academia, there's a lot of value in just kind of, you know, you know, pushing as you know, hard as you can and, and going as far as you can go uh, with with novel materials uh, mm -hmm. where you just tell yourself, hey, listen, we're just going to basically not use PCBs at all or we're not going to use microelectronics and see and, and just find uh, find out what it is you can do uh, with uh, materials that are intrinsically soft and stretchable and you know could be used for wiring or sensing or, or even uh, digital logic mm -hmm. um, but from a near term I, I haven't kind of encountered um, problems in engineering um, um, in practice where it was essential that you got rid of your you know your silicon-based microchip I mean usually uh, it's, it's you know th these electronics are so small and you know just so compact and, and well packaged that that usually you can kind of mount those to, to your uh, soft robotic device and then you know it doesn't really impair the, the the kind of flexibility or deformability of the overall system yeah and we have a question also uh he said that uh, there's no name but uh in cases where the robot is mimicking a biological system a human hand being the obvious example even if you initially imitate the sensing and forces and texture and softness that are used uh, by biological system. The material still uh, don't currently have similar self-healing properties to those seen in biological system. And as the material de degrades, it changes the relationship between the force that being applied and the feedback the system is getting. Is this something that anybody is looking at the moment uh, for this trade-offs? Uh, yes, I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, groups right now are do doing really exciting work on self-healing uh, uh, soft materials. Um, uh, you know, these are just you know, kind of more passive elastic materials and or materials that are also electrically conductive. Um, so, you know, there, there's been a lot of really good work uh, in that. And I, and I think that um, that that problem should to some extent be, be solved. Um, I mean, if it hasn't already, I mean, it will soon be. Um, so, so yes, I mean that that's kind of one um, you know one approach uh, to, to addressing that is through self healing. Um, I, I, you know, there, there's also um, you know been work done in the past, and I and I think there's kind of you know opportunities for continued work on materials are just that are just have very high fracture toughness. Um, mm -hmm. So materials that are very soft, 
um, and you know, and, and can be engineered to be electrically conductive, but are also just kind of resistant uh, to to kind of puncture or you know impact or scratching or, or tearing. Um, um, and so they don't even necessarily need to have a, a self-healing uh, property. Uh, and, and then regarding uh, you know the question about you know the properties of a system changing over time, uh, yes, I mean that's you know traditionally con considered a bad thing uh, within within robotics. Um, mm -hmm. However, uh, you know like I you know, mentioned before. Um, uh, I think this also represents an opportunity to, uh, you know, explore non-stationarity uh, and and uh, and and coming up with ways or algorithms so that your system can kind of, in an autonomous way, kind of adapt uh, to changes in its kind of uh, intrinsic properties over time. Um, and again, you know, th this is a feature of, of biological organisms as well. Um, uh, and so that that's kind of a um, you know I, I think something you know this question of non-stationary is is also interesting going to be interesting to explore. Uh, and then of course I mean uh, you know something that you know people not within the software box community but outside have kind of brought up uh, is and the reason they're attracted to the soft robotics uh, is that for the most part it does involve materials that are uh, fairly inexpensive. And mm -hmm. so the idea is that yeah if it kind of wears out over time you just go ahead and replace it. That's something you can. You know, do easier with these you know, polymers and soft materials would be a little bit more difficult sometimes with uh, with with materials that are kind of more precision engineered or you know involve kind of uh, you know more rigid uh, coating. So so that that's kind of another uh, you know option there that I think is is also promising for for a lot of cases. Yeah, and uh, last question here from Doris: uh, How much training does it take to get into industry? VS Norm Robotics, and what kind of education uh, would need it to be in soft robotics? Uh, this question from a 14 years old, and he's really interested in soft robotics and planning to go down uh, this career path. So I don't know if you can give an uh, answer for this, this question. Well, yeah, I am delighted that you know the, that you're in, you know, interested in, in a career, um, you know, in this in this area. Um, you know, it, what, what's exciting about it to me is the fact that it is such an interdisciplinary field. Um, I mean, I think, you know, looking ahead, um, you know, if you're 14 now and you're looking to, to you know, what kind of training um, and, and preparation you want uh, is, is best for a kind of career in this. Um, you know, I would, I would generally say that at least within your education and your academic training, um, try to, you know, gain mastery of underlying principles. Um, you know, you know, whether it's in, you know, mechanics of solids, what, you know, whether it's in material sciences, chemistry, um, you know, biology, you know, human kind of machine interaction, the psychology elements of that computer sciences. I mean, there's, uh, um, you know, data driven techniques, uh, you know, uh, you know, AI. I mean, there, there's kind of a lot, there's a lot there. I, you know, I'm not going to necessarily pick winners and say, you know, one is going to be, you know, the most lucrative or the most marketable, um, um, you know, that I, I, you know, don't have that, um, uh, you know, ability to predict. Um, but what I can say is that if you if you kind of find a identify a core discipline that has been, you know, that has been around for a long time, um, um, you know, oftentimes I, you know, I think that you know, the the insights and the the domain knowledge that you can gain from that perspective will help, you know, help you um, provide kind of unique insights and contributions, you know, not just to soft robotics, but, but to kind of other fields down the road. So, so yeah, definitely you, you want to kind of develop that, that kind of that um, scientific mastery. Um, yeah. You know, in terms of the actual kind of skills, um, I think the other important skill is to learn to work with people outside of your discipline. 
you know, learn to work in a, a collaborative setting, you know, um, play a role, a, a, a kind of a technical role in, in projects where you're, um, you're indispensable uh, to the success of that project. So uh, I think that's kind of something else uh, that, you know, that, that you definitely want to uh, develop and, and cultivate as, as somebody who's, um, you know, preparing for a career in soft robotics, uh, learning to, to kind of be effective in a team. Yeah. So I'll close this end. We have three questions. First one, do you think ego is important for the researcher? Uh, ego? Yes. Um, I, I think to some extent um, you should, you know, try to have you want to pursue things uh, with with excellence, um, and uh, I, I don't know how, like ego in itself, kind of how that how that comes. I mean, I, I that hasn't been really a guiding principle for me. Um, um, you know, I, I think that you know the, the more important um, kind of value is 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 really to kind of pursue things with excellence, um, and you know. The, the reality is that you know over time, soft robotics as a field it might it might rebrand itself. You know it it might be so much part of the mainstream it just might just be you know part of just robotics in general, and then we might not kind of create this this kind of dichotomy or division. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, and it might not be called soft robotics. You know, in, in the future. You know, um, so um, you know you know trying to establish yourself kind of within that field and make a name for yourself in, in soft robotics. It, you know, it may not it may or may not pay off uh, in, in the long run. Uh, I think what's what's kind of more important uh, is that that you really you know pursue excellence in what you do and, and really try to kind of uh, gain mastery of what it is that you're doing and, and not get to, so fixated with names and titles and and kind of you know awards and recognitions and you know or how you're competing with with your peers. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So so I think that's 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 the key thing. Also, something else, uh, and I. And I Tell this to people from from time to time. Um, you know the the danger, the downside of being uh, ego driven in your work uh, is sometimes you don't recognize that mm -hmm. um, basically the success of your peers is your success, right? So if you're kind of just you know in this rat race to, to kind of uh, rise above your your peers or you know or you know your, your collaborators and people in your environment, if they if they don't succeed, if they fail, that that's yeah. eventually going to kind of impair your kind of success in the future, right? Um, and and you know, and, and if they do succeed, it's going to create new opportunities for you. Yeah. Um, you know, even if they're the ones getting all the recognition, you know. So so just keep that in mind. I think that's a very good point. I think this question, next question, is related. How can we ensure a diversity of approaches uh, that get exposure they deserve and prevent an overinvestment in a limited set of techniques? So I think the question is about uh, academics tend to establish strong belief about. Uh, other fear that comes often at arrogance or elitism and discouraging exploration of ideas outside the mainstream. It's about how we can be intellectually inclusive. So what you mentioned, I think, is very good, but when we see in reality there is limited funding and grant, and that makes severe competition between different ideas. So how we can be more intellectually inclusive around combative ideas? Well, that's something I think that has to be ingrained in the culture of the academic institutions mm -hmm. and, the, and the funding agencies. Um, you know, it, it, it's for, you know, I mean, well before, the, you know, the field of soft robotics, I mean, you know, dating back to the inception of a lot of these, these kind of 
know, research kind of programs and, and institutions. Um, you know, there has been this tendency for the field to kind of gravitate towards certain solutions at the expense of, of you know, ignoring other uh, solutions that might actually be more effective. Um, and, and I would say that, you know, there, there's kind of this fashion show type type element uh, to academic research. Um, and, and, I, and I don't know if the, outside of uh, basically dealing that at the institution level um, and, and, you know, making sure that there's enough funding and um, resources allocated to these different approaches, I, I really don't know what else mm -hmm. would be a good, good solution. Um, uh, you know, that or, you know, just basically, um, you know, greater awareness in, in terms of the culture of, of the academic community to recognize that, yeah. um, you know, there's value. It, rather than putting all your eggs in one basket and just kind of, you know, you know, looking at the latest approach to solving a problem to still kind of try to distribute. Um, so th that has been something that the academic community has has kind of struggled with, uh, um, you know, for, uh, you know, for decades. Um, the counterpoint to that would be in industry and in kind of even in kind of entrepreneurship, uh, where yes, there 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 is still that fashion show type type element, mm -hmm. you know, where you know certain um, uh, approaches or solutions are elevated over others, you know, even though it, you know there, it might not be justified, you know, in terms of the actual performance. I mean, it might be kind of more of an aesthetic or, or an impression that people have uh, of that of that uh, of the field, um, you know. But at, at the end of the day, in entrepreneurship, at least, you know or an industry, it comes down to like, who's willing to pay for the product and does the product actually perform, you know, as, as claimed, I mean, do you, can you actually deliver? Um, and so if, if you're kind of worried about, um, uh, you know, about, you know, some of these issues in, in academia with, um, you know, your, your field or your approach, not getting a, kind of enough, um, uh, you know, credit or, or, um, you know, getting enough respect, you know, it might be, you know, th there might be value to, to kind of look at, entrepreneurship and say, well, you know, yeah. people might not understand now, but if I can succeed in getting a product out there that people are willing to pay for, you know, um, yeah. or, or some type of service that can help, you know, people kind of, you know, in, in you know, in a healthcare type setting, uh, then, then maybe that's, uh, you know, that's, you know, then that might be the thing needed to, to kind of really get people's attention. That's excellent point. Yeah. And if I ask you, what is the most important quality, one quality you have to maintain while being uh, in an academia? And your academic journey, what, what is the most important quality you think you have to maintain? Um, I think uh, persistence is probably the most important uh, quality. Um, so if, if there's something that you really want to learn, just be persistent and then try to learn as much as you can about it. Um, and then same with whatever goals you have, um, you know, getting, you know, into a PhD program, getting through the PhD program, you know, yeah. getting a postdoc appointment or, you know, getting a faculty position. It, it takes time. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, and for some people it can happen quick, for others it could take years to kind of get to that next level. Um, so, so I'd say probably the most important quality is, is to be persistent. Mm -hmm. And what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was it life changing? Um, it was actually from my mom. So like I said, my mom's uh, retired, but she was a mechanical engineering professor. Uh, and she said, don't just focus on one, you know, don't put all your, you know, don't, don't kind of just focus on um, uh, one practice or one discipline uh, within engineering. So I was very interested in math and, and I just wanted to purely do theoretical work. And she said, that's great, but also make sure that you balance it out with some experiment uh, experience doing experimental work uh, as well. And I would say vice versa. I mean, people were just primarily interested in experimental work. Try to balance it out with, with you know, exposure to computational techniques, theoretical modeling. 
um, you know, and, and, you know, for everybody, I mean, you know, also get, you know, more and more familiar with, uh, you know, advancements in AI and, and machine learning and data-driven techniques. Um, so yeah, don't, don't uh, make yourself kind of too specialized. Uh, I think this is really wonderful. I can see that how your mother have a significant role in your life as a researcher. That's wonderful indeed. So do you have final words of robotics community would like to say? Um, I, I mean, my final words are that I've been incredibly, uh, um, uh, you know, inspired by all the amazing work uh, mm -hmm. that I see from the from the wider community. Um, and um, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, telling people to kind of, you know, keep it up. And then for those who are kind of interested in this field, this is a, in, who are kind of early in their careers and, and you know, uh, are considering a, a, a career in, in soft robotics. I mean, it's an incredibly uh, rich field and, and um, um, you know, really kind of excited to kind of broaden them out uh, to, you know, as many disciplines and, you know, as, as, as many folks mm -hmm. are you know, interested in kind of advancing these, these approaches to engineering. So thank you once again, Professor Kalma, for this interesting discussion. And uh, yeah, thank you once again for your time. My pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you.